We lost 80% of our revenue over the span of eight weeks at the start of the pandemic because people just stopped traveling. And yet the expenses did not stop coming in. We had 7,500 employees. We had dozens of offices all over the world. Welcome to Giant Ideas with me, Cameron McLean. And me, Tommy Stadlin. We're co-founders of Giant Ventures, which builds and backs purpose-driven companies. At Giant, we're lucky to meet extraordinary people with giant ideas that are changing the world. This podcast brings you behind-the-scenes access to those ideas and the inspiring stories of the people behind them. We explore how one giant idea can kickstart a billion-dollar company, shape culture, and transform life as we know it. We recorded these first episodes at our live Giant Ideas Summit held at London's Tate Modern. The Giant Ideas Summit brings together 200 founders, CEOs, heads of state and other leaders to explore how we can harness cutting-edge technology as a force for good. Today we bring you an interview with Nathan Blecharczyk, the co-founder of Airbnb. Airbnb, of course, is one of the biggest technology success stories of the last 20 years, with a market cap of $90 billion at the time of recording. Airbnb is the ultimate giant idea. When they started, the idea of staying in a stranger's home was unthinkable. 14 years later, they've had over a billion stays. But it didn't start with a grand vision, and there was plenty of false starts. In this interview, Nathan talks about the power of purpose, and specifically how Airbnb's values help them survive crisis, including a racism scandal involving hosts, guests trashing apartments, and losing 80% of their revenue in eight weeks during the pandemic. Asking the questions here at the Giant Ideas Summit was CNBC and Sky News anchor Wilfred Frost. Nate, I love origin stories and doing some, some prep for this uh, before we get into these powers of purpose and some of the, the, the topics. One of the key reasons why this company was, was founded by, by you and your two other co-founders was because money was tight at the time. And that triggered... Uh, the initial idea. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, first, you know, my background is in, in software. I started coding at the age of 12, uh, self-taught. I quickly became a business. I ended up making almost a million dollars in high school. I mentioned that because I learned something very important at a young age, uh, which is that I could build things that other people valued. And I think that my, my kind of interest in entrepreneurship and having positive impact dates back to, to those early days. And it's what brought me out to San Francisco, and I found Joe and Brian through Craigslist. We became roommates in San Francisco uh, for about four or five months until the rent on our apartment was raised 25%. I said, well, actually, that's too expensive. I'm moving out of here. Uh, but the two of them wanted to stay. However, they had just quit their jobs to become entrepreneurs, also known as unemployed. Uh, <laughs> so they didn't have any money. Um, but they're both designers by background, and they saw that an international design conference was coming to San Francisco. And they noticed that all the hotels were sold out on the conference webpage. So they had an idea. Why not rent out Nate's old bedroom uh, to designers who might need a place to stay that one weekend? Um, and uh, the room actually had no bed. I had taken that with me. But Joe set up an air bed. And so instead of calling it a bed and breakfast, he called it an air bed and breakfast. They put up a simple blog post about it. And uh, sure enough, uh, they got inbound interest. And they were expecting guys like themselves, you know, guys in their you know, mid-20s. And uh, instead, they got a... Uh, 35-year-old woman uh, from Boston, uh, a father of four from Utah, and a man from India who inquired and ultimately stayed uh, that weekend uh, in San Francisco with them. And uh, aside from getting an affordable place to stay when there's frankly no other option, uh, and Joe and Brian making basically you know, $80 a night times four people, uh, sorry, times three people times uh, four nights, 
you know, almost a thousand bucks. They all went to the conference together, and this is where the magic happened. Uh, Joe and Brian introduced them to their their friends, and uh, the guests got a very local experience. Um, and so it really ended there. It was just supposed to be a one weekend way to pay the bills. Um, and it wasn't until a couple months later that the three of us were shooting ideas around. Actually, we've been shooting ideas around for a month or two before this even came up. And we reflected on that one weekend and we thought, maybe this is a big idea. Maybe we can make it just as easy uh, to book someone's home as a hotel. So that's what we set out to do in early 2008. And, and I'm really interested now in, in the idea that in 2008, that was a very novel idea or a quite, I mean, people could rent a full home but not as readily as a hotel, was, was what you were proposing, which today is second nature to many, a kind of crazy idea that was almost laughed at and turned away by most? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even novel. It was, frankly, a scary idea to many people. They said, how can you trust a stranger in your home? Um, and so the, very, the whole first year was very difficult uh, for a lot of reasons, including the fact that no investor you know, wanted to you know, write us even a $50,000 check. Uh, because they said, well, you know, what if in the extreme scenario, you know, someone gets hurt? Um, and so that was a, a really big stumbling block. And I think ultimately the core innovation of Airbnb has been around trust. You know, how can you trust a stranger? Um, and uh, one of our early hosts put it pretty beautifully. He says, all my friends say, how can you trust a stranger? And he said, you know, a stranger is just a friend I haven't met yet. But we had to create the infrastructure to create that trust. And there was mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of things that went into that. So I want to come on to the trust aspect because it's, it's a core part of the purpose that, that we're talking about. In those early years, though, first of all, was just the idea that you came up with that people caught on to the key factor? Or how important alongside that was the tech that you in particular helped, helped build the interface that was so user-friendly and, and the branding? Yeah, it was definitely the tech and the design. I mean, you know, the truth is there had been similar concepts up until then. There was something called couch surfing, which was you know, people offering literally their couches for free. <laughs> Uh, that had been going on for a number of years. Um, you know, certainly there was uh, a site called VRBO uh, that actually predates us. Those were like proper vacation rentals. But there wasn't like this wide in-between of like people offering out their like primary home or, uh, you know, a home that they like actually live in uh, on a regular basis uh, online. And so um, it was the design and tech that unlocked that to create the trust. And specifically what it was was three things in the beginning. One was really rich user profiles. So uh, you, know, you saw the person that was the host and you learned about them. Uh, this wasn't gonna be like Craigslist where it was like super anonymous. We were gonna take inspiration from like Facebook which had like real names, um, which was different than say what came before it, which was MySpace where people had like all kinds of pseudonyms. So we took inspiration from that. Two, uh, we were gonna facilitate the payments. So we realized that you know, disputes arise around money, but if we handle the money and if, if the customer pays at time of booking and the money is held until after the guest arrives, um, and if the guest shows up and there's a problem, they can call us and get their money back, um, that that handling of the money actually aligns incentives in a powerful way so that people follow through. Um, and it avoids possible scams. So handling the money was key, um, and nobody was doing that at that time. Um, like on, say, VRBO or other sites, uh, you know, it was all kind of a cash-based mm -hmm. thing. And the third thing was reviews, right? After each day, the guest reviews the host, the host reviews the guest. Both parties accumulate a reputation. If anyone uh, you know, violates the trust, it gets recorded and they're basically out of business, can't use the service ever again. Uh, so those three fundamental things um, was the initial innovation. Now, of course, over time, we built upon that and we've 
you know, added customer service. We added you know, a $3 million you know, guarantee around property damage and things like this. That's included free of charge. So like we built it out over mm-hmm. time, but the original innovation was really those three things. And so if, if we dive into trust a bit more, if society has come around to this idea of, of sharing and, and therefore trust has, has risen you know, each year that you've been in operation, do, do you think it's peaked out? Do you think there's further gains to, to make there? And how annoying is it for you that trust can be undone so much quicker uh, with with individual uh, episodes than perhaps it takes you to build it in the first place. Yeah, well, I, I think trust has to be earned, and so like um, you know, Airbnb is fairly you know ubiquitous and well known now. Um, but still, like if you haven't used it yet, um, the best thing to get you over the fence would be to hear about it from a friend or a family member, right? Like any kind of marketing that we could pay for, or even like a newspaper article. It's going to pale in comparison to the power of like somebody you trust having a positive experience. So it did take quite a long time to uh, you know to build up to the scale, um, and it's still I think the core you know rate limiter in terms of growth. And as you see it propagating in other countries, et cetera, um, and trust can be lost very quickly. Uh, things can go wrong, um, and when that happens, you know you have to be you know ultimately. What I've learned is kind of go above and beyond uh, to to get on the right side of these issues and address root causes. You know, a crisis of trust is not something to be managed away. It's not something to just be like, you know, take care of the individual. I mean, yes, you need to do that, but you need to do so much more than that, right? And I think we learned that the hard way the first time in 2011. This was the first time that there was a high-profile incident of someone's apartment being vandalized, um, and you know. We didn't know how to do this at first. Um, you know, we were trying to take care of the person, uh, the home, and you know, we dropped the ball in a few places. Um, but ultimately, what we did was tell everyone in our company to drop everything and to brainstorm how can we make this the service you know more safe and more reliable. Um, and we asked them for uh, the next several weeks to just work on that. And in the span of two weeks, we launched forty new trust and safety features. And when we did that. You know, that was a big deal because I don't think anyone was expecting that. Mm-hmm. That was what going above and beyond looked like in that moment. Um, and you know, looking back on it, it made us into a much stronger company as a result of going through that. And I think we've seen that time and again with these trust issues that uh, when they come up, they're very challenging. But if you lean into them and you don't resist, but you say, you know what, there is some basis of truth here, even if it's frustrating, mm-hmm. um, that is not representative of the entire experience. But if you really lean into it and try to address root causes, um, I think it can make you into a, you know, a better organization. It feels like a good uh, point to, to discuss one or two of the other challenges that you faced and then had to address and, and have ultimately overcome. Tell us about in 2017 when there were some scandals surrounding whether or not certain hosts were willing to accept black guests mm-hmm. and the scale of the problem that, that that created for you and how you addressed it. Yeah, well, what happened was I think there was like first a research paper that was published on this topic indicating that there was discrimination happening on the, happening on the platform. Um, and you know, I think we weren't really aware of this research and you know, it was one of many research papers out there. We didn't take it too seriously, I would say. Um, it wasn't really on our radar. Um, but it triggered then people on Twitter um, to start sharing their experiences on the service and the experience that, that they had had. Uh, and there started to be a hashtag that started trending called yeah, I think Airbnb while black. And so then you start seeing all these very personal like anecdotal stories of you know, 
and of course, you know, I believe that these things happened. Um, and we realized, wow, like this, this is a real problem. And it's still, I think, you know, in this grand scheme of things, um, you know, not representative of all that Airbnb is, but it is a problem and we have to lean into it. So this is another example where, you know, instead of just trying to take care of like the individual affected parties, it was like, how do we go back to, you know, root causes and turn this into a, a muscle of, of working through this. The first thing we did was hire a woman by the name of Laura Murphy, who has a background in kind of civil rights, and she did an audit of our platform um, and you know, identified you know, the feature areas where we should go deeper into. Um, that was a, a good start. But the really powerful thing we, we did more recently, um, building off that work, was something we call Project Lighthouse. We worked in partnership with an organization called Color of Change. And, when doing this kind of stuff, it helps to have partners, by the way, um, you know, because, you know, you, this was unfamiliar territory to us. Um, and also when you're talking about building trust, um, you know, you need to work with people of credibility. And in this case, we didn't. Um, so we, we worked with Color of Change to come up with a process by which we could measure when we launch something, you know, is there some kind of discriminatory impact is it impacting some users differently than others, you know, based on, uh, you know, whether it be their gender, uh, the, uh, their color, their ethnicity, et cetera. Um, and so as a result of this, this is now baked into the process of launching anything new at Airbnb. And there's a whole, you know, internal awareness that when you build something, you have to think through absolutely, you know, is there any kind of bias or discrimination happening? And so, you know, I think ultimately we did some pioneering work around, you know, thinking about how you build products and how it can have unintended impacts and then how to actually measure it and, you know, publish your findings. And obviously it, it is, it has worked and, um, it, well, it's, it's getting better, right? And, you know, the sad thing is it's never done. Uh, yeah. It has to be an ongoing process with everything that you do because you're constantly launching new things and, you know, these things, these impacts are subtle, uh, but at least now we have a tool. Just like whenever you build something on the internet for most companies at scale, you A-B test stuff, you, you, you measure the impacts on your business, you know, now we measure the impacts uh, mm -hmm. you know, on our user in, in ways that might introduce bias. Um, we have eight minutes left, I have so many topics, so I'm gonna jump around a little bit yeah. now. It's not necessarily gonna flow as, as clearly, but so much I, I wanna get to. Um, one that I'm really interested in, there's obviously a lot of founders in this, in this room, three co-founders of, of Airbnb. Um, how do you make sure you all still kind of work well together? I'm sure maybe it's not always perfectly together. Um, and ultimately, do you think you've, you've made that work throughout pretty much? Yeah. Um, look, the three of us are, are all very different. First, at a high level, I'm an engineer. The other two are designers. So right there, you know, <laughs> uh, there's just some, some, some practical differences. Um, but also, I'd say, like, you know, Brian, our CEO, he's just, like, incredibly you know, bold leader who's always just, you know, pushing you to think 10x bigger and challenge yourself in terms of what's possible. Um, and then Joe is incredibly compassionate. You know, he's always wanted to know, like, user stories and how does this impact people and how do they perceive things. Um, and then, you know, I myself, the engineer, uh, at least originally, you know, was always like, okay, you guys have big ideas, big visions, but like, you know, if we can't do them, like, it doesn't, you know, we're never going to get there. So, like, let's break this down into a series of steps so that we can actually make progress and get to where we're going. And, um, 
you know, that there's a lot of tension. And I certainly felt in the early days that, you know, they could dream a lot bigger than I could build, at least fast enough. Um, and so they could just generate these ideas so quickly. Um, but early on, we realized that when we debated our different perspectives and reached compromise, that those solutions that involved an intersection of our ideas were always the best. It wasn't about what I thought or what Brian thought or whatever. We realized that like the, the debate, even if a little painful and time consuming, was worth it. And so I think we developed early on a respect for one another's differences. And I'll tell you, I mean, even until today, like we see differently on a lot of things in terms of how to go around solving a problem and like how to, you know, sequence work. And but we have the respect for one another to hear each other out and ultimately strive for compromise. And I think that's a big part of the, the success recipe. My, my next question was oddly follows perhaps from that, um, but it wasn't necessarily meant to. But if we look at WeWork, um, you know, I think it's fair to say they, they bit off more than they could chew and they, they've gone through a lot of restructurings and, and problems because of that. Um, how did you avoid doing that? Did you, was there luck involved? Were you close to, to, to sort of similar necessary restructurings at certain times or not? Well, again, I, th I think the fact that there was three of us with very different perspectives, um, you know, we never got like too out of balance. Like there was always rigorous debate around our decisions. Um, and so we never got like out over our skis in a big way. Um, I will say kind of leading up to the pandemic, you know, having gone through like a decade of good times, um, you know, that I think led to some lack of discipline. Um, and I think almost every tech company I know of kind of went through this during this period where you're able to raise, you know, money at high valuations, private company. Um, and when, you know, money is not a constraint and you have thousands of employees that come up with a long list of good ideas and goals they want to hit and every year they ask for, you know, double the money or, you know, you know a lot more resources, um, it's very easy to just say yes, yes, yes. Saying no is hard unless you truly have to say no. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the pandemic... Uh, introduced a lot of austerity for a period of time. And even coming out of the pandemic, we've been much more disciplined in terms of growing headcount um, only by like single digit percent uh, each year. Uh, so I think we learned a, a pretty big lesson during the pandemic. And how close were you to going bust during the pandemic? Was that, was that, <laughs> was that a genuine threat? Uh, it was a real concern. Um, <laughs> we lost 80% of our, our revenue over the span of eight weeks. Um, at the start of the pandemic because people just stopped traveling. Um, and yet the expenses did not stop coming in. We had 7,500 employees. We had dozens of offices all over the world. So you know, the expenses were pouring in, revenue had stopped. And the worst thing was you didn't know how long this was going to go on for. right? And so you, know, you don't know how much you need to budget for in the bank account. Um, and so we immediately needed to go raise money, but we're now in a distressed state, so it's very hard to go raise money. Um, and... And so that was, that was the challenge. Um, we raised the money. Um, we also had to work with our community to go with, through what they were dealing with. So like our guests wanted full refunds. We were sitting on billions of dollars of customer deposits uh, for stays that had not yet commenced but had been booked. Guests wanted their money back. You know, we thought to ourselves, you know, how did we think about this issue? Uh, ultimately, we decided that... Um, you know, this is a public health crisis, so what's best for public health? Well, it's to not make people feel obligated to travel simply because they had put down a deposit. 
So we ultimately made the decision to refund all the money to the guests if they wanted it, which most of them did. Uh, of course, our hosts were rather livid uh, that their deposits uh, you know, were, were no longer there, even if it was written to the terms of service that there was an extenuating circumstance uh, clause um, to work with them. You know, we took $250 million out of this new money that we had just raised and just gave it out to them and said, you know, look, this is a small, small amount compared to you know, what you had it, were hoping for, um, but you know, we want to have skin in the game with you. you know? uh, we recognize that you're going through hard times too. Um, and you know, our company uh, is in a challenging state, but we're gonna, we're gonna do what we can to uh, provide a little bit of a lifeline over this you know, next month or so. Um, and then there's the whole internal reconciliation around, you know, we did have to go through a layoff, um, unfortunately. We lost 25% of our staff. Um, you know, we decided that we had to take it seriously. We were gonna cut deep. But if we're gonna cut deep, we're going to make sure we treated these people right, you know, um, and that was the deal. Um, again, you, there wasn't extra money sitting around, but nonetheless, we said if we're going to cut deep, we're going to make sure that you know these folks who are also experiencing this pandemic in their own ways, with their own families, are taken care of. And so that meant, you know, generous severance policy, extending the life, uh, the health insurance till the end of the year, letting them keep their laptops to help them find their next job. But even better than that, I think, and more creatively than that, was we got the idea to package up their resumes um, into um, a database that we then uh, made available to companies who are hiring. So everybody who was leaving who wanted to participate could put their resume into this database, you know, 1,800 resumes. And Airbnb has a you know, good reputation for talent. And so there were a lot of companies hiring, and they could just download the database of resumes and start searching through it very easily. So didn't require a huge amount of effort from us, but I think a lot of others might not have come up with a creative idea like that. That was, I think, really helpful. Mm -hmm. We also took our 200 internal recruiters and asked them to source jobs. Instead of hiring people, source jobs for those who are departing over the span of the next uh, six months. So these were a few of the ways in which mm -hmm. we navigated uh, a difficult time. So we've got about, about a minute left. So wrapping up, the fi final question I have, which is going back to what you said at the start, which sort of surprised me a bit, that, that a big part of the idea wasn't just renting out a room rather than a hotel room, for example. It was connecting people, which personally, whenever I've used Airbnb, is not, not part of it. It's just an alternative to, to a hotel, yeah. maybe for the location it's better or the price. Is that still a, a core purpose for you as, as a company or have you evolved from it? And was it truly one of the early aims? I always am a bit skeptical, for example, when Mark Zuckerberg says his aim is to connect the world versus really just make as much profit as possible. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I, I think, you know, Airbnb at its best when you have like, you know, some of the best experiences that I've had and, and others have had. And look, it's not all the time for sure. But when it's at its best, um, I think our, our users feel like they belong. They feel like they're connected um, to the neighborhood that they're in, you know, the, the local authentic experience. They might feel connected to the host. They feel integrated into the community. That's what we aspire to create. We don't always achieve it, but that's Airbnb at its best. And so that, was, that has, you know, since nearly the beginning, kind of been our vision, is to kind of create a world where you can belong anywhere, not just by being physically in someone's house, but being integrated into a community. And hopefully that's knowing people, hopefully that's uh, knowing your way around the neighborhood um, and all the local spots. And I think there's still so much more we can do practically to deliver on that. But that has been kind of our, our vision. It's, I would say, a big vision. It's not yet achieved fully. Um, 
But by having a big vision, you know, you can inspire people to keep thinking creatively. Um, and I think another thing we've done that was really important in making this all happen was uh, when hiring employees, we've been very deliberate about the culture we wanted to create. And before we hired anyone, we defined our core values. And to this day, every employee we ever hire goes through a core values interview. One of our values, um, it should be any company's values, but uh, is you know you got to champion the mission, right? You know I don't want someone who's a mercenary. I want someone who's a missionary, mm-hmm. somebody who really believes in what we're trying to do in the world. Um, because I think, you know, when it was just the three of us, you know, there was obviously some magic there. But now it's thousands of us. How do we make sure that there's still that kind of uh, creativity and thirst to think creatively, even in a crisis, uh, and come up with uh, you know novel ways to to, to do good things, mm-hmm. to create that belonging, um, or to think about how the service can uh, benefit all the different stakeholders in our ecosystem, not just uh, our employees, our investors, or guests or hosts, but also the communities in which we operate. And so I think that's been a really important part uh, as you scale a company is to really create the expectation um, about what you're all about and how mm-hmm. people should think about that. And it's actually, we got some related advice from former President Obama leading up to going public. He said, we asked him like, you know, what should we be thinking about as we think about going public? And his advice was, you need to institutionalize your intentions because as a public company, there's gonna be a lot of demands on you. You know, obviously you have a fiduciary duty, uh, like was said before, but the more you can broadcast up front what kind of company you're trying to be to, and, and tell that to your investors, tell that to your employees, then the right people will hopefully self-select in um, and you're more likely to, to achieve that outcome, be that kind of company. 